Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I appreciate you joining me. I have an important interview panel discussion episode for you today that is all about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the Black Lives Matter movement, something that I know is top of mind for a lot of people in a lot of organizations right now. I've been having conversations with uh, talent development professionals from a lot of different organizations and I know DEI has moved to the forefront for many of you. I know many organizations have um, made it a top priority and scheduled listening sessions and conversations and made policy changes. And I know there's also many other organizations out there that have done absolutely nothing um, because the leaders are frozen, don't know what to do, don't know how to handle it, or don't think maybe they need to or should. And I know many of you are in the middle of this. You are working in learning and development, talent development, or DEI, and you already knew this was important, but weren't really getting the support that you wanted to or needed. And now that's maybe changing and you're figuring out what to do. And some of you, again, are having those listening sessions and having those conversations and others, maybe not. And so I wanted to provide a little bit more context, a little bit more um, information and more of a discussion today to help all of us out there uh, who are trying to be part of the solution. And so uh, today I'm doing uh, the first panel discussion that I think I've had on this podcast, maybe ever, I'm not sure, in over two years. Um, I invited uh, two really great uh, black women in the business world. Uh, the first is Regina Lawless, who is a global director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Micron Technology in the Bay Area. And the other is Suwa Toba, who is an organization and leadership development um, professional at Google, uh, which you've probably heard of, right? So uh, both of them have their own stories, their own perspectives, um, but are very aligned on how we should be approaching this issue. And uh, we get deep into their own personal um, experience as well as how we can approach this new movement and challenge from an organizational perspective and what we can do as individuals as well. Uh, quick note on the interview, it was recorded live on LinkedIn. So you hear me mention that. You may hear me mention a couple comments that popped up. Uh, we actually got a ton of comments on this one, more than any that I've ever had before. So I would say this is probably the most popular live interview I've done, um, but uh, I don't get too much into that. So I think you'll still get a lot of value out of listening to the recording of this panel discussion. And one more quick note before we get into the panel, speaking of discussions and conversations, um, the world is changing so much right now and there's so much uncertainty in the business world. And I hear from talent development, learning and development leaders all the time. They wanna know, hey, what are other people working on? What are other people doing? How do I navigate this uncertain landscape? And I wanna tell you about a couple things. Number one, uh, recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community to be your central place to go where you can meet with other talent development professionals as well as hear from experts, ask questions, get answers so that you can do your job better and accelerate your career success. This is all about making you the hero in talent development because talent development is becoming one of the most important parts of every business out there and you have an awesome opportunity and role to play and I wanna help connect you with other talent development leaders out there who are making a difference. That is my superpower and that is what I love to do and that is what the membership community is all about. So come join us if you are ready to build your network and get your answer, your questions answered, just head over to tdtt.us, tdtt.us, 
and uh, you can apply there and uh, you can use discount code while it's available early bird. Uh, sorry, use discount code hot seat to get 25% off. So discount code hot seat for 25% off. The other thing I was going to tell you is that I am working on plans for a virtual summit. The Talent Development Vir Talent Development Think Tank Virtual Summit is coming soon, probably in September. I'm laying the groundwork now. Um, if you have ideas, suggestions, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you will be hearing me market that more as it comes up. And now, without further ado, here is my panel discussion with Regina Lawless from Micron and Sua Toba from Google about Black Lives Matter in the workplace. Let's go. Uh, ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. I know you both have a lot of stuff going on. Um, this The impetus for this conversation uh, goes back to Regina and I building a relationship over a few different topics in the DEI and learning and development space uh, and getting to know each other. And then, uh, you know, a few weeks back uh, after the death of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement becoming, uh, you know, huge all over the, the country and the world, and especially in our workplaces, um, I've been trying to make a, a concerted effort to reach out to more black friends and colleagues in my network, um, you know, with the idea that the more we all hear different stories, different perspectives, um, the, the easier it's gonna be to be part of a solution. And um, so Regina, I've been talking to you about putting a panel together and I appreciate you helping me with that. Um, maybe we just start with real quick intro. Um, Regina, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do at Micron? Sure, sure, Andy, and and I'm I'm really glad you're putting this together because I do think that now is such a great time to be having these discussions because not only are they relevant, but um, there's such an interest in people um, or from people to really have dialogue about these really heavy subjects. I think people need to process it, uh, and so it helps to do that with others. Um, so at Micron, I am responsible for their uh, DEI learning portfolio. So all of the training that we do specific to diversity, equality, and inclusion, um, I oversee that, um, as well as our ERGs. So I recently took that, that piece on um, in my area of responsibility. So I'm really excited to drive inclusion um, and build allyship through our ERGs. Love it. And ERGs uh, are employee resource groups, right? You got it. Yes. Okay, cool. And uh, Suatoba, working at Google, um, tell me a little bit more about what you do over there. Yeah, so I'm in a function called organizational development, which usually people are like, what is that? <laughs> uh, but it's a function within HR. I'd say it's kind of like a consulting firm within the organization. And we go around the org ensuring that there's effectiveness, uh, equality across the organization, ensuring that parts of the business helps to achieve the greater whole of the organization. So how do we help each business unit deliver on the aspirations they have with their strategy? Awesome. Love it. So um, what I love about this is, is obviously I get your perspective as Black employees in the workplace, but also both heavily involved in either DEI or the organization and thinking about how people work and interact. So my first question for you, and um, maybe we'll start with you, Regina, is what does the Black Lives Matter movement mean to you? Mm. Such a powerful question, right? Because, you know, there was a time where, and I think I was sharing this with you, Andy, in a, in a previous conversation, there was a time where that was a personal discussion and a personal movement that my family and friends talked about. Um, because being, you know, being a Black woman in America, I have, you know, obviously Black friends and family, um, the, the, the violence that's happening that's that's now becoming more more visible mainstream has been going on you know so both my parents lived in the south when you know during segregation so this is not new for me and my family um, but now it's become you know comfortable safer to talk about in the workplace so now for me the black lives matter movement the resurgence of it um, because it, it started years ago um, in, in the wake of, um, you know, after, um, 
Trayvon. Thank you, Sua. I was thinking of Trayvon and I was also thinking in um, Trayvon Mountain down here in Central Florida where I live. Yeah. Yes. And, and I was thinking of um, Mike Brown, too. So um, but yes. So um, for me, I'm I'm so glad that the conversation has shifted now from that being something controversial, saying Black Lives Matter to now people are starting to get that. What we're really saying is that uh, in order for all lives to matter, Black lives need to matter. And we need to take a, a, a focused look on racial equity. And so for me, I'm excited. It, it means now that um, the private conversations, the kitchen table conversations that, that Black people have been having, now it gets to come to the mainstream. And, and, and now I'm hopeful we have allies that will help us move move it forward. Absolutely. Uh, Siwa, what about you? You know, very similar to what Regina would say in the and I'd include in that is it's about time. Mm. Right. That's a piece that's been heavy on my heart in that these have been conversations that I'm an immigrant to this country. So my family moved to the U.S. in 91. Mm. And since moving to this country, my the color of my skin has been made very apparent to me and not quite understanding why and going through my profession and having to work so much harder and do all of these things, be overqualified for everything in order to even have a chance. And so to be in this place where this is one of the two of you said it, this resurgence of energy around Black Lives Matter in a city that I call home because Minneapolis is where I moved from before coming to the Bay Area. So it's it's this moment of America and the world has woken up to the reality that people of color face. America is in a place of no longer being able to dodge the realities of, well, did it happen this way? Did it happen that way? And now we can have a, a frank conversation, an honest conversation, not an attack or shaming or anything of that sort, but you and I can all have a conversation together to say, we know what is because it's in front of us. We've seen it in eight minutes and 46 seconds on a video. And now we can dissect that. What does that mean for my life, your life? And what implications has that had? I think that brings such a relief to say we're not pretending any longer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will add uh, what it means for me. I, I like what you both said there is that we get to have more open conversations about things like this. I think that before, obviously, there were many people, yourselves included, who were um, very concerned about everything that was going on and a lot of people who just kind of ignored it or even those of us who saw it and thought, ah, oh, I wish this could be different. We didn't really talk about it. Not openly. We certainly didn't talk about our racial differences because that was that was weird. Um, you know, it was awkward. Uh, and now we get to have more conversations about this, which is which is wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask, I think it's really important to hear stories of how people have experienced work and life differently. Um, because we all have our own set of experiences. Sua, you mentioned coming to this country in 1991. I'm guessing you were very young at that time when you came, right? Um, but I'm curious, uh, when you came, what were your expectations? Did you know that, that racism existed and you would be seen as different or did you not? And then how have things progressed from there? Were you you know, disappointed or have you have, have things kind of progressed as you you expected they would? Um, coming into this country as a Black woman? You know, I have an interesting experience in that my father lived in the U.S. in the 60s. So he was actually at um, MLK's speech at the in, in D.C. Wow. Um, and so as a child, I mean, I remembered, and it, it wasn't quite clicking for me, but there were, what do you call it, the little photo cards that you would put in the projector thing and see the images? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. what that even called, the slide, yeah. yeah. And so as a child in Liberia, my dad showed us those, but I was just like, what does this mean? What is this place? What is this even about? And so in coming to the US, there's a distorted perspective that immigrants, those not living in the, you know, outside of the US have that this is this great place full of wealth and all is great. All of the things opportunity, yeah. opportunity is here. So coming into this country and starting to automatically notice that you're different. I remember in one of the organizations that I worked for, um, I, I'm sitting at a you know table ready to work with this group of leaders. And one of the 
leader said, oh, you have an interesting name. And I tell him, you know, the origins of my name. And he said, you speak English very well. Hmm. Well, English is the only language I know how to speak. Hmm. Right. Liberia's national language is English. And and so it's little microaggressions of that nature that someone wanting to touch my hair because it looked interesting. Right. So there's different things that you experience on a different day that um, makes you wonder and makes you question. And so it's helps to build my character. It also helps me to realize the differences that exist because I see that some of my peers who are not black don't necessarily have to experience what I do. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, Regina, for you growing up in the United States in the Bay Area, I think you say you grew up in East Palo Alto. Is that right? I did. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious that to me, the interesting thing that pops out of my mind is I believe that is uh, a more, uh, you know, not as wealthy, right. Um, area that's in kind of the shadow of a very wealthy white city in San Francisco. What is it like growing up in an area like that where you know we're in this small enclave that's in the shadow of all of you know this world that I don't even, did you even think you could end up there? Yeah, it, it, it's really, it's fascinating, right? So when I was young, you think that kids don't know the difference, but you start to pick up very, very early on that your neighborhood is different than others. So East Palo Alto, at the time, I was I w- lived there in the the early to well throughout the eighties. Throughout the eighties, I lived there with my family, and so during that time, um, very, very um, poor neighborhood. Um, there, that was during the crack epidemic. So that ravaged that community and surrounding communities. And just right, there was a a overpass that took you to Palo Alto. And so everybody knows Palo Alto for Stanford. It's adjacent to Atherton. So talk about, you know, um, extreme poverty right next to, um, extreme wealth and privilege. And, my my mom used to have to drive us. There were no real grocery stores in East Palo Alto. Um, oh. There were just little corner stores, liquor stores, things like that, um, you know, or equivalent of a bodega, but no real grocery store. So we would have to go into uh, to Palo Alto so she can do her banking. She can go to the grocery store. And I just remember driving with my mom. And, and as soon as you hit, you know, as soon as you hit that line, it was, they, the two cities were actually in two different counties. So you hit that county line going over that bridge and I was like, like you start seeing tree line streets and it just all of these amenities and people walking and, you know, it, it just it was night and day. And I I was, you know, less than 10 years old, you know, wondering why, why is our neighborhood so different? Why, why do these people get to live like this? And then my parents are also working hard. They're trying to do their best. Why do we have to live like this? So you very early on, of course, at that point, I didn't know anything about racial inequity or redlining or, you know, all of right. the like, racial economic policies yeah. that kept us separate and unequal. You just know that difference and you feel like you're you're different. You you start to, you know, if, if luckily my parents, you know, did not allow me to to think too much about being less than, but it's, it's easy to internalize that because your, your neighborhood is so much different and so much um, you have so much less than others do. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious how they, uh, and if they did strike that balance of, Hey, we're in this situation, you know, the education of this, but there's still plenty of opportunity for you to go do whatever you want. Right. I mean, you've obviously, ended up in a very successful position, you know, working for a large company in the position that you, that you are, you know, you didn't let that hold you back. Um, but there's still a lot of awareness around that. Yeah. My parents, from the time that I could pick up a book, I was like the, like three trying to read. (laughs) 
So, but they encouraged that. They, my parents from as early as I can remember were like education, educate. And I'm sure Sua's parents did the same thing. It was education because for two reasons. One, they were deprived that, you know, my parents did not have the ability to go to college and, you know, really fulfill their dreams. They came to California, both of their sets of families came to California to get away from the segregated South to try to make a better life for themselves. They started a family. They didn't have all of the opportunities. So for for me, my brother and my sisters, uh, my third sibling just graduated college this past May. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was education. And my both my parents hustled, like hustled hard to get things done. And I mean that in the best possible way. (laughs) So they they worked as hard as they could. And so I saw that work ethic. And that's what what kind of took me through my career. So despite all of the the setbacks, it was them instilling education and hard work in me that just kept me going. So I'm curious, um, transitioning into the corporate world, I know you both, you know, went and got multiple degrees and got into the corporate world working for, you know, prominent companies like Under Armour and Intel, now Micron and Google. Um, Did you think that things would be a lot easier? Did you know that you were still going to face a lot of discrimination? I'm curious what types of uh, examples of racism or discrimination you faced in the workplace being, being black in the corporate world. Um, why don't we start with you, Sua? Yeah, you know, did I think it would get easier? I'm not, I think I've always been hopeful that one day there will be a pivot. Mm. Uh, was that a realistic, like, oh, within five years, within 20 years, within my lifetime? I think my greatest hope was seeing Barack Obama inaugurated as president of this country, right? Like that was a hard turning moment in this country that I never even imagined possible. And when I think about the mindset that I realized that I adopted, it was one of, Sue, you need to understand the system in which you're operating. You need to understand what leads to success right? Take all of the emotional things off. Like you told me this and I should this and I deserve X, but it was a mindset that I've taken on that I hold to this day of agnostic of what the organization paints itself to be, how wonderful they are, how inclusive they are, how much they play and the the fake people in the photos that we see online um, know very well the system in which you're joining And I'm joining the organization for ethical reasons, right? Like you do good in the world. You have a moral compass because of the impact that you're having and things of that nature. And I too also have an aspiration of my own to grow in certain areas. So there's been a very precise intention that I've had with the organizations that I've chosen to work for in saying that, no, it won't be perfect because it's not William Toba's company, right? It's not my father's company. He's not signing my paycheck. And to remember that as long as I'm working for someone else, there will be things that I'm not necessarily satisfied with. However, places like the ERG, as Regina talked about, I felt like that was a place I could have a voice, right? So in some cases, some of the organizations I worked for, I was uh, the chair of the employee resource group or the vice president of the employee resource group, but using my voice in an intentional way to help elevate others that found themselves in a similar plight as me and to say, and so when you do find yourself in that moment, a great mentor of mine, Audra Bohannon once said, it's not the stimulus, it's your response, right? So the racism and the inequities will be there, let's not pretend, but it's up to you, Sue, to decide how do you want to respond to whatever that adversity might be that might try to hold you back? How will I navigate my way through that? I think that's the mindset that has led me through to where I am today. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy, right? It doesn't mean it makes the path any smoother. When I come home at night, the mental exhaustion is more than the amount of work that I produced for the day or the meetings that I was in for the day. So. Yeah, and it's that's such a great point and, and something that I've espoused many times that is is a great mindset to have even beyond this for anything, right? Is that you can't control everything that's going to happen to you or around you in life, but you can control in general how you respond, mm-hmm. right? And it sounds like that served you well. Um, Regina, what about you? 
For me, <laughs> Sua talking about the mental exhaustion really resonates because there's uh, there's no other way to describe it but microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's just those little comments, those slights that let you know that you're not quite like everybody else. Um, the Sua gave the example of people touching her hair. I can't even tell you how many times I've had to like do the matrix to like <laughs> <laughs> because people wanted to touch your hair in the office. Yes, absolutely. Um, Because they're like, it looks exotic or it's different, which thank you. I like that you like my hair, but please don't touch it. Mm. (laughs) Um, So from that to um, just being mistaken for a completely different Black person that I look nothing like. So that has happened several times um, in in jobs where, um, you know, people will just start having a conversation with me. They think that I'm somebody totally different. Um, But I think for me, the biggest um, hurdle I faced are um, that unconscious bias around what the prototype of a leader is. So I have always been pretty ambitious. So if they would have let me manage people, my first job, like I would have signed up to like, let me, (laughs) let me manage as many people or things as you can throw at me. I was crazy. Um, (laughs) Coming out of college, I was just eager to get my feet wet and get experience. But I kept running up against, oh, well, you're doing such a good job, but mm, I don't know if you're ready. Or, mm, you know, I had one, you know, leader told me, well, you just don't have enough company experience. Um, Not sure if you can really lead at the enterprise level. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, well, you're not bold enough. Um, And then every time I would probe to, okay, tell me what that means. What are what does not bold enough mean? Like, what am I not doing? What do, yeah. what results am I not delivering? I'm I'm already leading a function, right. um, so it's it's hard to argue I can't lead at the enterprise level. So it's those it's those intangible. You are too um, bold. That would probably go the other way too, right? Right. It's those those requirements that are nebulous because you're being held to an invisible standard. Would you um, see white colleagues getting those opportunities that you absolutely absolutely and so i'll give you one really brief example one of i was uh probably seven years into my career six or seven years in and i had lobbied my manager for a promotion i wanted to manage people Mm. um she was giving me great feedback my performance reviews were excellent and so she opened up a job managing the leave of absence function it had like one direct report so she told me that i was doing such a good job why don't i just keep doing what i'm doing um she wasn't sure i was ready to manage people by this time I had my bachelor's degree and had already started my master's. She hired, rehired someone who didn't even have a bachelor's degree mm. um, <laughs> to come and do the job. So instead I of making, the white person that she hired. Right, because she had a relationship and it was a, it was a white woman that she mm. rehired um, to come and do that job. So just things like that, that um, just let you know, okay, you have to be more qualified. Um, and even then, sometimes it's that affinity bias, right? It's or similar to me that, you know, people want to, you know, are, are attracted to people who are like them. And if you're, if you're different, if you're other, it's harder to break through. Yeah. Uh, you bring up a point that something that I've struggled with over all of this, when I think about the gravity of the whole situation is, and how do we make this better? And I want to get to, you know, a couple uh, ideas for solutions here is that, uh, people get so far in life, jobs, promotions, everything based on their network and relationships, right? And oftentimes the network is, like you said, people like us, the affinity group, right? You are white, you hang out with white people, you're black, hang out with black people, or you know, executives like to hang out with executives and things like that. Um, you like to hire people from the same school or you know that sort of thing. And I know that there's a lot of efforts out there in talent acquisition and recruitment to try to correct a lot of these things and to improve diversity hiring and things like that. But it's still, it sounds like there's a, there's a strong psychological challenge there that that's a lot of how people operate. And it sounds like that has had a detrimental impact to your career. 
Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm even asking like how it's going to be challenging. How do we, how do we deal with that? How do we get around that? Yeah, I'll just say from a from a process standpoint, one of the things that we're trying to do, um, you know, as a DEI department is to build some um, some safeguards into the process. Right. Because you can't, you know, unconscious bias is just that it's implicit. You're never going to completely get rid of it. Right? You're never going Everybody to have biases. Yeah. Absolutely. That's how our brains work. Those mental shortcuts. So but what companies can do is to put some gates in the process um, to help slow managers down. Um, give them a rubric so that they're making decisions off of objective criteria, including other people. So one of the initiatives that um, we've piloted recently is around diverse interview teams. So making sure that there is um, more diversity in the interview team or interview panel. So there are things that have been um, that other companies have been tried have tried that are um, well researched to to um, adjust your your talent processes to help mitigate that bias. Mm. So well, what do you think? What would you add to that? You know, just with us being HR folks here, one of the things that I think is so critical is in those talent calibration conversations, right? Oftentimes you'll hear organizations will say, oh, we need to be mindful of our URMs, right? Underrepresented minorities. And oftentimes women are included, right? Women just in general are included in that number. So one might imagine, oh, you know, it's your your Latinx or your Black community or Asian, depending on the industry that you're in. And I think it's really important that we're having a conversation that's really focused on when we're saying we're calibrating our talent, who are we looking at? Who do we consider talent and who are we leaving off the table? Right? Who doesn't even have the option to come in to that conversation on a spreadsheet or whatever it might be to even be heard? And so for our leaders out there, for those in positions of power to say, do I really know the people in my organization or am I just going off of the, the comforts and the biases that I have, the people that I see all the time because my managers right, are putting them in front of me? But I think it's really a matter of and I'm thinking about this at scale. Right. How do we have impact? at that level. Um, a second component that comes to me is something that we did at Target some years back. I don't know if the program is still going on, but we did reverse mentoring. And so, for example, I was mentoring the SVP of uh, talent and recruiting. And so he and I would have really raw conversations, no attacking or anything of the sort, but really it was an opportunity to really understand each other and to say, here's what my experience looks like versus what you perceive my experience to be, right? So to just create that visibility, one, for him, Tim at the time, it gave him a sense of who is this person in my organization that in the case he had heard about me and he actually asked for me to be his reverse mentor. But again, opening up unusual opportunities for senior leaders to have exposure deep within their organization and to build relationships with people, not just as your your cogs in the wheel, but who's this human being that sits in that cube, right? Who's this human being that sits on the third floor? What are their interests? What are the things that they do? My hope by creating that type of connection is that you start to see people versus, oh, that person is different or that person, I don't know. But instead, it's another human being in your organization that you now want to belong, right? And you will do things in your power to ensure that there's more inclusion because you know their stories. Yeah. So important, right? Treat everybody as humans. It's, if we know, don't treat people as numbers, cogs, whatever. Um, okay, so you get to the, that's a nice segue to the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, my my view of this is that companies have been working on the recruiting and the diversity part of things for years, but the bigger challenge these days is the equality and the inclusion what we're really seeing, right? That there's not enough of that. Um, you know, people are still being discriminated against in the workplace and then you're not comfortable, right? And, and you feel like going somewhere else. Um, and so I'm curious, do you feel like we're making a lot more progress with that now? And what can organizations do to improve the equality and inclusion part, especially as I think about 
there's a wide range of organizations responding to this. Yeah, so um, you're spot on that I think that companies have made some progress on the diversity front. Um, I think they understand that they have to attract more diverse, you know, depending on the industry, right? Because we still have industries um, that are that are lagging in that space. But um, but yes, equality and inclusion are the new frontier. And, and I would say um I'm hopeful that I feel like now we're starting to have that conversation before. Um, I don't really think that people understood the systemic barriers or weren't willing to have conversations about the systemic barriers and the importance of inclusion and belonging that we can hire every black person on the street we see or every Latinx person. Um, but if there is not a place in the organization for them that they can feel authentically themselves and bring their 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 full um, potential full awesomeness to work then they're not going to stay um, so i think what companies can and should do is get really really serious about equaling the playing field um, or um, doing equity programs so mm -hmm. Um, there's a, um, we, you know, we often have, um, the conversation, you know, as, as DEI practitioners about how do you, how do you, um, you know, go about getting people opportunities. And now I think we're ready for that conversation of, um, doing those targeted actions, making equity. So the difference being, equity is you give people what they need to be successful, whereas equality is you're giving everybody the same. Um, and we realize people are starting from different places. So if we're just doing a, and Sue, I think you said this beautifully, if we're just focusing on URMs as a broad group, we're not looking deeper into the data to see, no, actually at our company, it's Black women who are not progressing at the same rates as other women. Or it's, you know, we have a gap in this particular group and that's where we need to apply the program and we need to apply the metrics. So I think it's getting very um, surgical almost, like digging into your data and as is in the tech yeah. industry, what do they love more than data? Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, that's their jam. So get into the data and dissect it and be willing to actually put some real programs in place and some metrics to hold executives accountable. I see a lot of talk about what, what can be done, what should be done, but historically I've not seen companies really holding their executives' feet to the fire, feet to the fire to to actually move the needle. So I, I think it's yeah. twofold. Yeah, and related to the the numbers and the, the metrics, I'm glad you brought that up because that's important as well. I mean, it starts with conversations, right? And, and figuring out the right thing to do, but then to make changes, you need to measure stuff. We had some, uh, some great comments on LinkedIn from my friend Mervyn Kennedy McFoy, who said, take a snapshot of your workforce, a very simple mapping process, use the National Census Bureau racial mix and snapshots of all levels of the business, not just at the hiring phase. Uh, and he also said, don't forget about equity, which you, you did bring up uh, as well. Uh, so, so such important stuff. So what do you think about um, improving equity and inclusion in the workforce, in the workplace? We have to go to the root of the issue. I mean, to be honest, I too often what I've seen and where organizations get um, start to stumble on themselves is, we're trying to force what's the saying a, a square into a round hole a hole whatever the marriage into a round peg or round square peg into a round hole right there you go right but if we are to redefine what the problem is that we're trying to solve the tools that we have today may not necessarily be the tools to help us get there right so we keep stumbling because right? We have the wrong thing on. We're trying to solve for the wrong problem with the set of tools that we have. Regina, I love what you're saying around the measurement because we know in every organization what gets measured gets done. So if there were clear goals and objectives in line, in mind, no different than what we do from a business perspective. If you don't meet your goals, if you don't meet your sales targets, if you don't have your engagement numbers where they should be, leaders get penalized in some way. And when you start putting those types of punitive measures in place, 
not the ones that force leaders to swing the opposite direction, right? Where they just, oh, go hire all black people, all 50 black people, and we'll have them and all will be well. But really looking at systemically, what are you doing to shift your organization? If it has to do with the level of questions that are being asked, what are you doing to shift those? If it has to do with the pools or the places and where you source your talent, are you going to the HBCUs, right? Because the, the normal thing we hear is, oh, we don't have, um, the talent doesn't exist for certain roles. Okay, well, <laughs> we know that's not the case, right? So my, my, my recommendation, which is something that I've seen Google do as of late, one, our CEO Sundar calling out very specifically, here's what will be. And here's where the buck stops with me. And here's what will change. It's not a, oh, I think we should. And, oh, we should think about this and put a committee together. He's saying, here's what we will do differently, right? So it's a clear declaration. And then you have others in the organization who have responsibility over the human capital saying, and here's how we will go about in quarter one, in quarter two, in quarter three, tangibly listing out, here's how different segments of our organization will make change. To me, that's how you go about looking at the whole suite of DE&I to figure out what's needed for the future. Yeah, so important. Um, I love that. You know, we've got to be very serious about it, be able to take a stand, to, to address it systematically, to measure the changes. So as I've been talking to, you know, being a consultant and running this podcast in a community and just being a consummate networker, I've had the pleasure of speaking with a lot of people in L&D from different companies, different industries, mostly across the United States uh, over the last few weeks. And what I've found is there are some companies who are absolutely diving into this with listening sessions and making changes. Um, They often are tech companies, more progressive companies, right, in the Bay Area. Um, But there are others as well. And then I'm surprised when I talk to people from other companies who say, we have done nothing. And I, I I don't want, I hate to generalize because, you know, every company and industry is different. But what I find, you know, what it sounds like a lot of the times is, you know, typically these companies, of course, are run by older white men. And they, I think they just don't know how to respond. They think things are fine. And I don't want to go rock the boat and say the wrong thing because it's really risky, right? Um, what advice do you have for those companies? Like, how do we get the conversation started? How do they make a difference and be part of the solution instead of just business as usual? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's tough. I know that's tough. I can't promise. <laughs> right. Here's my here's my take. I, I think first and foremost, there is no standing by the wayside anymore. Like this is now an issue that is fundamental to how, especially if you do business in the United States, this is fundamental to how we're going to um, move forward as a nation. Um, I think it is a fundamental human rights issue. um, Mm -hmm. And it is a business issue because as we start to get more and more um, technologically advanced, innovation is um, the speed at which we innovate is incredible. And that's not just the tech industry. That's just um, our world. Um, And you need diverse people to infuse those strategies, those product roadmaps, those, you know, engaging with your customers. So um, we've seen now there is no going back. So you either you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. So I would mm-hmm. encourage those, um, you know, CEOs or, or leaders who are um, apprehensive about jumping in to really reflect on um, their own, quite frankly, their own humanity. Like if you are a human being, um, you employ other human beings. <laughs> you, you cannot let this issue of people fundamentally feeling unequal um, go by. And it, it's going to matter at some point, if it doesn't already, it's going to matter to your, your customer base. Um, we see 
um, how companies are having to backtrack and re, you know, recalibrate because they're not, they're missing the moment. They are tone deaf um, for whatever reason. So I would say before it's too late, um, yeah. those those leaders need to to do a little self little soul searching and and find how they connect to this issue because it really does touch everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. So what, what do you think? You know, it, the coach in me says, this is a moment for internal reflection. This is a moment for us to look deep within and to say, like, if you're an executive, if you're in the C-suite of any U.S. company, it required a lot for you to get there, right? Unless you were put on a silver platter and just handed into that position. Network. Why I say that is because in order to get to these levels, you have to know how to solve problems, right? So no one can tell me that if your business was tanking, you would sit there and say, hmm, I wonder what I should do. I wonder if I would offend this business unit by shutting them down because we need the other portion of the business to make money. Hmm, I wonder what Wall Street will say if we're not giving them the return on their investments. None of those conversations would even be entertained, right? And so I, I look at this as or this narrative as it's an excuse is an excuse to say, well, my hands are tied and I don't know what to do. So if I sit on it long enough, right, the channel will change and we'll go back to COVID. And yes, this sounds a bit harsh and yes. Right. But if you remember my first set of words at the beginning was it's about time, right? Mm -hmm. We start having the honest conversation and that's all it is. What might it look like for each human being to allow themselves to say, Human dignity deserves me becoming uncomfortable for a few minutes. The dignity and the well-being and the livelihoods and justice for other human beings should encourage me to want to do something that I'm not comfortable doing. Should encourage me maybe to have different sets of conversations within my families. And or for one to even ask themselves, and what's keeping me in place? What's leading me to hold on to these stories that I'm so used to holding on to and saying, I don't know what to do. What's that about? Right. But we have to be in this place of internal reflection to say, if it was my son, that was his neck was being knelt on for that long. If it was my nephew, if it was my father, if it was my uncle. We wouldn't be having the same conversation so then the pivot is, so why then when it comes to the narrative of people of color, Black people in this country, that everyone has to wonder? When we don't have to do that same type of wondering with other similar instances. And so I think it, it requires deep inner reflection. It requires us to rumble with our own past and our own privilege and the, the stories of some and what has allowed some to prosper and others to struggle. I think that's that shame and that guilt and that story that in the rumbling with it, right? The vulnerability of it all, right? And seeing the truth in it, that we can actually start having some conversations because to me, to be honest, it has nothing to do with you, Andy, having a conversation with me or my executive having a conversation with me. There are some inner things that those individuals need to work on. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Um, nothing else for me to add to that. So um, if you, do you have time for one more question? Yes, please. Yeah. All right. So one more question. So we talked about the organizational level. Oh, hang on. Just, okay, honey, I'm in the middle of an interview. <laughs> I told you I'd have one coming in at some point. Um, we talked about things from at the organizational level. I want to take it down to the individual level to finish. For your white colleagues like me who say, I want to be part of the solution, right? I want to help. I've just had no idea what to do for so long, right? Um, what can we do to help and be more part of the solution and keep this movement going? Educate yourself. Uh, educate yourself first. Um, spend some time reflecting on your own narrative. What have been the set of privileges that have allowed you to thrive? right? As a person um, wearing the life suit that you were born into this world in, right? You didn't choose it. And to do that work really thoroughly before coming to 
um, a person of color who has had to carry this burden for so long to, and then, you know, instead of asking me to educate you, do the work on your own um, because there's plenty, plenty and plenty and plenty of resources out there. Yeah, 100%. Regina? I would echo that completely because um, I think it's important not to shift the burden um, mm -hmm. to the person of color to explain um, all of the historical, like we shouldn't have to give a 400 year history of race in America. Why is this happening? Yeah. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so there are wonderful resources out there. Um, check Amazon, all of the books on race are, are pretty much um, um, sold out or, or, or waitlisted. My so Kindle puts them right there on the featured list almost every day now. It's nice. There you go. So there's a lot of resources out there. And I would also say, get past your guilt. Because as I'm talking to people, as I'm talking to my white friends and colleagues, um, you know, I, I understand the guilt, especially around once you do recognize that you have privilege, you have unearned advantages over others. That sucks, right? Like nobody wants to think that they got a position or got farther in life um, for, for something they didn't work for. Yeah. Um, but um, staying in that guilt is not helpful <laughs> because that keeps you in, in, in action. So I would say, you know, get past the guilt and, and figure out how you're going to be an ally. I think that that same privilege that feels shameful is the same thing that people of color need you to like weaponize the same mm. way that we see these viral videos of people weaponizing their whiteness or their privilege, weaponize, <laughs> weaponize that privilege for good. Yeah. Use that energy in a good way. Use it in a good way, not to, you know, disrupt a person from color from doing their everyday life things. Use right. it to actually shed light on um, the inequities. Use that power for good. I love that. Such great advice. Um, so educate yourselves first. Don't put the burden on your black colleagues. But then once you have, absolutely have those conversations, right? Because I think we need to hear different people's uh, perspectives, experiences, uh, really get to know one another. One of the great things for me in all of this is just, I think it changed the game from let's try to pretend that we're not different to let's actually have a conversation about it. And it's totally fine to say like, hey, Regina, you're black and I'm white. Let's have a conversation about this. What, you know, what has your experience been like in the workplace? And I'd be happy to share mine and let's learn from each other and let's try to make the world a better place. And that's what we've been trying to do with this interview. And um, I hope people have gotten a lot of value from it. We've been getting a ton of great comments on LinkedIn. I wish I had time to read all of them. Um, but I want to thank you both so much for making time to join me uh, in this discussion. Thank everybody who tuned in live. I'll be putting this on my podcast as well, because there's just been so many great valuable points here, so many things that people uh, need to hear. And so Regina, Sue, I just want to honor both of you and say thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Of course, pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. All right, hang on. All right, thank you very much.